Great, would you bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's Word? Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for sending us your Word. Thank you that it's not just uh, pages or words on a page, but living Word, and that, Lord Jesus, you embodied this Word as the Word become flesh and made your dwelling among us. Thank you that in you we see the perfect representation of the Father in every way. And I pray that as we look at this word this morning, in light of the time in which we live, give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll begin this morning with sharing with you an old story some of you may have heard before. It's a story that's told from an old country church where one of the members had dozed off to sleep during the sermon. Can you imagine? Has it... Anyone ever done that in the history of sermons? Well, this happened, and and this fellow dozed off in the middle of a sermon. In fact, he had a habit of dozing off in the sermons, and so the preacher had taken note of this fellow uh, dozing off, and so trying to rouse him, the preacher said loudly, Will all those who want to go to heaven please stand up? And so, of course, everyone stood up except for the still-sleeping man. Then, after they had all sat back down, the pastor continued somberly. Now will all those who want to go to the other place please stand. And right on cue, another member dropped a songbook right beside the sleeper. It landed with a thud, and, and the guy was jolted awake and immediately jumped to his feet. Then, being the only man standing, he looked around sheepishly at everyone else, still sitting, staring at him. Finally, face red, he looked back up at the pastor and said, Well, preacher, I don't quite know what we're voting on, but it looks like it's just you and me who are for it. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to try the same thing this morning, and hopefully I won't have to. And I hope that I won't have to wake anyone up, at least not in the literal sense. However, in today's scripture passage taken from Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, there we read the Apostle Paul using an analogy of sleep and seeking to jolt his listeners awake, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. So if you turn there with me once more this morning, Romans 13, 11 is our passage. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, the famous commentator I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Warren Wearsby, he sums up today's passage in three commands. He wrote, Wake up, clean up, and grow up. Wake up, clean up, and grow up. And so we're going to consider these three commands this morning. The first is the obvious, wake up, wake up. Now, setting the stage for this wake-up call from the Apostle Paul, he begins by underscoring with this statement to say, understand the present time. Understand the present time. So what time is it? Well, time to get a watch, right? No, not time to get a watch. That's not what he's talking about. 
Not literal time, he's talking about understanding the moral and spiritual conditions of the present age in which you are living. So the present time being the, the culture, the, the age in which you are living. It's time to understand the time that you are living in. So then, what were these conditions that his, uh, the people he was writing to needed to understand? What was the present time in which Paul's original audience of that first century Roman church needed to get? Well, let's take a closer look at their context. Paul's writing to the Romans in the first century. At this time in world history, Rome is without any question, without any argument, the single greatest city in the world. There's a reason why the, the unofficial slogan of the entire world of that time was, all roads lead to Rome. It was the center of everything. It was the center of civilization. Its sophistication, glory, power, and stunning architecture can hardly be overstated. Consider that even today, millions upon millions of tourists will visit Rome every single year to see even what is today quite impressive when you look at the architecture. But remember, this is its faded glory. Because in the first century, Rome was at the height of its glory. The Colosseum was not in disrepair. It was in full glory, full spectacle, and, and things like that, the, the Parthenon, and all these other fantastic architecture was at its peak. And so when we consider, as I just said, the world-famous Colosseum, it sort of becomes an, an, em, an emblem uh, of all of Roman culture because we see a lot of things summed up in one piece of architecture. The Colosseum simultaneously portrays Rome's brilliance in engineering. Just consider, they built that in the first century, and it's still standing today. Like, what do we build in modern times that even stands for a century or two, right? We don't, we don't build things to last anymore. But in that time, they built something that has now stood for over 2,000 years. It's still standing. It's incredible when you consider their engineering and their ability to pull off incredible feats of architecture. It also portrays something more insidious because it shows their power over their conquered enemies. Because remember, who fought in the arenas? Not Roman citizens, but slaves. Those who had been conquered in their many conquests, they would take these people captive and the cream of the, the crop, their fighting men, their generals, many of them would be forced to fight to the death in the arenas. And so it showed their, their power to subjugate their enemies. The Colosseum also showed something that was at the very heart of the Roman people, and that is their depraved lust for bloody spectacles and death. They couldn't get enough of it. And many of these games were hosted through the centuries, and these were common occurrences within the Roman Empire, and specifically, the height of it all was the Colosseum in Rome itself. And so as we consider this, that it was around this time that Paul sent his letter to the Roman church, and in this setting, the Roman Empire has just begun to persecute Christians in a more systemic way. At first, it was just sporadic, little pockets of it here or there. But at the time that Paul writes this letter, the persecution of Christians is beginning to ramp up. It's getting to the point where some are being arrested, some are even being put to death. 
And one of the surprising reasons for this persecution increasing was that Christians were being accused of cannibalism. Have you ever heard of that before? When I, when I first read about this, it shocked me. How could Christians be accused of cannibalism? Well, it likely comes as a surprise to you today, but think about it. As out there as it seems to us, the Christians were the people who talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of their founder in Holy Communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And so when people just, the Romans heard about this, they assumed it was literal. And so it sounded a lot to them like cannibalism. And so, well, let's get those cannibals. An easy thing to say, that's bad, let's get them. A second surprising reason for the persecution is that the Christians were being called atheists. Now again, isn't that a little bit of a surprise? I mean, Christians, atheists, this doesn't exactly fit, right? Well, again, we have to look at the context of that culture. How could Christians be considered atheists? Well, in Rome's impressive temple, another feat of architecture, the Pantheon, in the Pantheon, all of the hundreds, if not thousands, of different Roman gods and goddesses, they were all put on display in alcoves where a carved statue or idol, essentially, representing this god or goddess, you would go in there to worship it, to pray to it, to petition this god or goddess to answer your prayer. And so, it's hard to overstate how many gods or goddesses they had. They had a god for literally every day of the week, a god for every month of the year. There was a god for every holiday, and they had many holidays. There was a god for every single vocation, for every single situation. In addition, they had plenty of empty alcoves where they could add new gods. Because remember, they were always conquering new people, and so they were all for adopting new gods to be put in. Because for them, it was this idea of, we're going to collect all the gods in the world so that we become more powerful. And so in this polytheistic thinking, the Romans, the, the more gods, the better, essentially, was their thinking. And so when Christianity came along in this worship of Jesus, the initial thought of the Romans was, well, hey, we got more room, we've got more alcoves, put your Jesus on the shelf and we can add him alongside all of our other gods. Of course, the Christians couldn't do that. They said, no, Jesus will not stand alongside these other false gods. He is not one of many gods. He is the one true God. And so, to the Romans, this just wasn't okay. Refusing to believe in those other Roman gods, they considered this atheism. To only hold to one god was narrow-minded. And so, many were executed under this very charge of being atheists. So, for the first century Roman Christians... Understanding the present time meant first realizing and accepting the reality that following Christ where they lived was to be counterculture. It meant that they could no longer just blend in with the prevailing beliefs and practices of their idol-worshipping Roman neighbors. For them, to worship and follow Jesus alone was to go against the grain. It was to swim against the current. And it made them an easy target for persecution. Now here we pause for a moment and look at our current situation. What do we have to understand in our world today, right here in Clarny, Manitoba, Canada? Is there any similarities to that ancient Roman setting? 
Well, we just have to look around, and we don't have time to get into every detail, but with every passing year, we see those same things happening here in Canada, don't we? Where being a follower of Jesus today and holding firm to the entire counsel of God's Word, the Bible, is counterculture. To hold to every verse of Scripture today in Canada, right here in Killarney, is to go against the grain. It's to swim against the current. And guess what? It increasingly makes us a target for persecution. You know, not that many years ago, it would have been just a laughable thing to accuse Christians in general of being unloving. But today that's happening. You're not accepting of everyone, so therefore you are unloving. And this brush is being painted, of course, in the whole realm of sexuality. If you will not condone certain behaviors, now the the accusation is you Christians are unloving. In fact, you Christians are hateful. What? Really? And yet those are the charges that are being levied against us. Just as for those first century Roman Christians, atheists? What? Really? And yet... We see how the enemy works in this way. And so increasingly we see in Canada today, in Clarny today, just as in ancient Rome, increasingly we are living a counterculture gospel. So now returning to the Romans. In light of understanding their present time, Paul says, verse 11, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So Paul is saying to them and to us today, in light of all of this, wake up. Stop sleepwalking through your Christian life and take your walk with Christ seriously. Why? Paul gives an additional reason as to why we should wake up and take this walk seriously. He continues, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It is nearer today than when we first believed. Now, what does Paul mean by this exactly? Well, he means, quite obviously, that with every passing day, we draw closer and closer to seeing Jesus' face. Are we closer to seeing Jesus' face today than the day you first prayed a prayer to believe in him as your Lord and Savior? Are you closer to that day today? Yeah, you are, right? We're closer to that day today than we were yesterday. That's the way counting works. Because we don't know when the end date is, but we're closer to the end date. I'm closer to my expiration date today than I was yesterday, and some of you may also identify with that statement. You know, to flesh this out just a little bit further, I think most of you get it already. But let me just ask you a rather morbid question. On what day, month, and year will you die? Do you know? What day, month, and year will you die? You don't know, of course. No one can know, and we don't like to think about it. But one thing we do know for certain is without knowing what date will be on our tombstone, we know for certain that there will be a date because that date is coming. We don't know what it is yet, but it is coming. And that's the first thing that Paul is saying. We are closer to Jesus' face because we know inevitably we will all die and we will see him face to face. And so for the first century Roman Christians, for them being actively persecuted and killed, the answer to that question was, well, I could die any day. It could be tomorrow. Hey, it could even be tonight. 
I could have soldiers knocking down my door. And while we are currently here in Canada not facing that type of persecution, regardless of our age or health, the same is still true for us, isn't it? The answer is still, I don't know. I could die any day. Because we simply don't know when our last day will be. Whether we are old or whether we are young, we are not guaranteed anything. Now let me ask you another question. On what day, month, or year will Jesus return? <laughs> Isn't that a fun one? People love to speculate on this one. I'm sure there's, you could line up a hundred guys right now who would tell you, I know when it is. And they'll all be wrong, right? Just as all last thousand who have predicted it or or 10,000 who have predicted it have also be wrong. Because as we know, Jesus said about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's a closely guarded secret when the Father says, that's for me and me alone. But here's what we do know for certain about that day. Though we don't know the date, just like with our death, we know that it's closer today than it was yesterday or it's nearer now than when we first believed right it's nearer and so for these reasons Paul is saying we need to wake up and live in a daily state of readiness to meet Jesus face to face because whether it's his return or whether it's us going to him every day that passes is a day closer to seeing Jesus face to face And the final question that you don't have to answer is who wants to be caught spiritually sleepwalking their way into meeting Jesus face to face for the first time? Who wants to sleepwalk their way into his presence? Billy Graham once said this, We are to wait for the coming of Christ with patience. We are to watch with anticipation. We are to work with zeal And we are to prepare with urgency. Now, I am absolutely convinced today that we are living in the end times. I am absolutely convinced, in fact, I am certain that we are living in the end times. And do you know how I am so certain about that? Well, because in Scripture, any time between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his return from heaven is referred to as the end times or the last days. So according to Paul, Peter, all the other apostles, we're living in the last days. We're living in the end times. And so if they thought that in the first century, how much more in the 21st century, right? We're that much closer. And of course, we can get into the signs that are ever increasing in frequency, but that's a a topic for another sermon. Nonetheless, we know that we are living in the last days or the end times of the world's history. It's the last age. And now first century Christians, they themselves initially believed that Jesus could return even in their lifetimes. Paul anticipated it. So did John. And so when Jesus didn't, many of them over time began to grow complacent. And they began to lose that first sense of urgency and commitment to their faith, anticipating seeing Jesus in their lifetime. And I believe it's incredibly easy for the same thing to happen to us, isn't it? You know, it's been 21, going on 2,100 years, over 2,000 since he left. So, you know, it's been a long time. It could be another couple centuries further. I'm not going to get too stressed about it. You know, at the same time, while life is incredibly good for us here in Canada, 
You know, we have all of our felt needs met. We have security, peace. We have money in the bank. We got food in the fridge. And so for all of those reasons, again, it's easy to be lulled into this sleep of complacency. In this same vein, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. You don't have to turn there, but if you do, you'll see on your heading that it's the story of the ten virgins. Now, the story of the ten virgins in that culture, uh, a close comparison would be we would call them bridesmaids, ten bridesmaids. And so these ten bridesmaids are waiting on the groom to arrive for the wedding feast. And in that culture, it was unknown when the groom would arrive. And so there was this state of anticipation and preparation and readiness because he could show up at any time. And so they're anticipating his arrival, but five of the ten bridesmaids, they get tired and they get drowsy and they fall asleep. And finally, word comes that he is on his way, but half the bridesmaids realize that they hadn't brought enough oil for their lamps to burn through the night. And so they tried to borrow enough from the other half that had been prepared by having enough oil, but those other five told them, well, I'm sorry, but we don't have enough for us and you. You need to go and get your own. Go buy some more. And so while the five who had been prepared sat there waiting for the groom's arrival, the other five hurried. They're like, we can get to the sea store and back before he gets here. Right, because sea store sells oil, right? You could burn motor oil. Come on, get creative, right? It would have been olive oil likely in their time. And so they go back, they get their olive oil, they hurry back, they're like, yes, we made it. And they look around and everyone's gone. While they were at the sea store, the groom had arrived, he had received the wedding party, even though it was cut in half, he's like, hey, you five are ready, come with me. The other five show up, they go to where the wedding feast is located, and they find the door is locked. And when they hammer on the door and say, hey, we're back, we've got our oil, let us in, they are denied entrance, all because they had been sleepy and unprepared for his arrival. This is a serious story because Jesus is telling it in context of his return. Don't be asleep. Don't be unprepared. I'm coming. And later on he says, and when I come, it's going to be at a time that no one is expecting. It could be like a thief in the night, he said. Or it will be like a thief in the night. And so the central point of this parable reflects that old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Because you never know when Jesus, the groom, will return for his bride, the church. And so church today, recognize the time in which we are living. Recognize the time, wake up, and be prepared. Now secondly, Paul says, clean up. Being prepared means cleaning up. Verse 12, he says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now that last phrase, the armor of light, would bring uh, close uh, uh, parallel to Ephesians 5 where he talks about the armor of God. And so drawing on that same parallel, he says, put on the armor of light, suggesting that there is protection in seeking to live godly lives, that if we are dressed in the light rather than in the darkness, this is what it means to be prepared. And so, of course, we don't want to be found dark, dirty, still mucking around in sin when we see Jesus' face, when he returns, or when we go to him. 
Paul describes the waiting period as nighttime. Paul then uses night and day not just to illustrate the periods of time, but also good and evil. And so in verse 13, Paul gives six examples of sinful behavior, behaviors of the darkness. And he says, have nothing to do with these things. Avoid them at all costs. So he says, let us behave decently as in the daytime. Then the six things, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. We're not going to dissect those six categories, but I want you to just see that they are broad categories. If you dive into them, especially as we looked at in Sunday school this morning, we are guilty of many of these things, if not all of them, when you get down to the heart of what they mean. It's not just outward actions, it's inward thoughts and attitudes. And so when we look at these things, there's a temptation here for everyone that he says, get rid of these things, have nothing to do with them. So it begs the question, how do we do that? I mean, how do we clean up when we so easily succumb to and give in to those old temptations? I think we can all identify with Paul's words in Romans chapter 7, where he says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body? that is subject to death. We can all identify with these words because we've all done it. We've all been there. The good that we wanted to do, we didn't do it. And the evil that we were trying so hard to avoid, we ended up doing. And we just feel terrible, wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this condition? And Paul thankfully gives us the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, my friends, our only hope to be cleaned up, our only hope for the power to change rests not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that leads us to part three, which is finally to grow up. So we have wake up, clean up, and now grow up. Paul says, if you really want to clean up, then you need to get rid of the old clothing that doesn't fit anymore. And put on the new clothing appropriate for your new standing as a follower of Christ, as a child of God. And so instead of trying to force ourselves into new habits by force of our will, Paul says we should instead clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So in clothing ourselves with him, think about it as his righteousness is covering up our sin. His his goodness is covering up our wickedness. And so as we put Jesus on... He says, just then, having done so in faith, stop thinking about how you will gratify those other old desires. And so if you seek to follow Christ, he says, think about him instead. Think about how to put him first in your life. Your desires for other less helpful things in in the same vein will diminish. And so our goal is not to live the perfect sin-free life, but our goal instead becomes to follow Jesus. We focus on him rather than on just do this and don't do that. And so we can stop trying harder and just focus on Jesus more. That is the antidote to our sinfulness. It's not to sit there and, and, and be like the Pharisees and try to measure my good versus my bad every day. It's look at Jesus. Focus on him. Focus on his desires. He will increase and our sinful desires will decrease. There's an old Native American parable, and you've probably heard it adapted in various ways. 
it speaks of two wolves. And the one wolf represents your good and wholesome self, the part of you that wants to treat others honorably, to encourage, to build, to love. But the second wolf represents your destructive, evil, dark self, the part of you that bites out with sarcasm, with resentment, with gossip, the part that wants to tear others down to try to elevate ourselves, the part that seeks to satisfy our own fleshly nature. And so a boy once asked his father, between these two wolves, which wolf will get stronger and overpower the other in the battle for my life? Because in this parable, both wolves reside within, inside each person. And so the answer to the son's question was this. Son, it's simple. Which wolf will win is the one that you feed. The one that you feed. And so, following that same line of thinking, Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, you must deny yourself, that is your old fleshly nature, that old wolf, deny him. Don't throw him those scraps of thought. Don't throw him those scraps of indulgence. He says, deny yourself and pick up your cross, your noble nature, your sacrificial nature, the the part of your spirit that desires God and nothing less than God. Get rid, deny that old, that old self and pick up the cross and follow me. Again, that idea of following Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, forgetting about this. Focusing on Christ and what he desires is the best antidote to diminishing sin and the temptation of it in our lives. Because when we sit here and say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. What do we end up doing? We do it. You maybe have heard this one. Don't think about a white rabbit. 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 What are you thinking about? A white rabbit. Right? So think about Jesus. Actually, I'll do reverse psychology again. Don't think about Jesus. Don't think about Jesus. Don't think about Jesus. No, don't take me literally on that. Reverse psychology just for the record. Think about Jesus. Focus on him. Pick up our cross. Deny ourselves and follow him. Jesus says this is the path forward for all of his followers. Starve that old nature. Feed the good wolf within. And so like a comfortable piece of clothing, Paul says, put on Christ Jesus. Wear him all day, every day. All day, every day. Not just Sunday. All day, every day. Jesus wants to be the Lord over every aspect of our lives. He wants to be Lord over our singleness and over our marriage. He wants to be Lord over our career and our free time, over what we hear and what we watch, the way we live, the way we reveal that he is either the Lord of all in our lives or he is not Lord at all. And this requires our daily love, devotion, and self-discipline to focus on him. I'll close with this story. The 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. It is the oldest active duty regiment in the United States Army. It dates all the way back to 1784. Its mission is to conduct memorial affairs to honor our fallen comrades in arms through ceremonies, special events, and to represent the United States of Army well as ambassadors. One of its members, a lone sentinel, marches 21 steps forward and 21 steps back across the tomb of the unknown soldiers. 
symbolizing the 21-gun salute given a dignitary. And this happens, this lone sentinel marches those 21 steps forward and 21 steps back every 30 minutes, around the clock, 24-7, 365, and this year, 366. Every 30 minutes, a new sentinel will take over the guard duty, and they will work on this rotation throughout the division, through the regiment, forever. As long as the United States endures, this will continue on. In fact, it's been going on since 1930. 24 hours a day, regardless of the weather, a guard has marched those 21 steps forward and those 21 steps back across the tomb of the unknown soldiers. Each one will spend five hours a day preparing for this sacred duty. Former commander of that regiment and two-star general Dan York wrote about the Old Guard's members and their commitment in his devotional, which he entitled Old Guard. He noted an Old Guard member must commit two years of their life to guard the tomb. He will live in a barracks underneath the tomb. He will pledge not to drink any alcohol on or off duty. He will pledge not to swear in public for the rest of his life. He cannot disgrace the uniform or the tomb in any way. The first six months, he cannot talk to anyone outside his unit, nor even watch TV. All of his off-duty time is spent studying the 175 notable people laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. After two years, each guard receives a wreath to pin to wear on his lapel, signifying his service as a guard of the tomb. Only 400 presently wear this pin. And so long as members obey these rules, they may keep and wear the wreath with honor. Now when I think about the old guard, and I think about those sacrifices that each member of this volunteer regiment make, remember no one gets forced into this, it is a volunteer regiment, they say, I am willing to step up to volunteer to dedicate myself not only for these two years, but for my whole life to represent this with distinction, with honor, as an ambassador. And now imagine, this is, this is, for, this is for a human institution, a, 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 a human political entity, a military, and yet they see things there that are worth honoring and to conduct themselves accordingly. And so if we imagine ourselves in that same vein, following Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, creator, commander of the universe, and if we committed ourselves in that same manner to putting off the deeds of darkness and daily putting on the armor of light by studying scripture, spending time preparing our minds for battle through prayer and meditating on the word, through spending time worshiping God in a personal way and in a corporate way, and seeking to bring honor to his name in every aspect of our lives with our whole heart and our whole life. What would that look like? And what ripple effect would that have to all those who our lives would touch? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider this question in closing, we recognize that in ourselves, we fall short. And so in this, we thank you for your grace. We humbly confess where we have fallen short of your glory, of your perfect standard in our sin, where we have fed that old nature. As so, the Lord Jesus, we confess. But even more, as the Apostle Paul said, he wanted 
in his spirit nothing more than to serve you with his whole heart and his whole life. And that is our desire this morning as well, Lord. And so to this end, Lord, we fix our eyes on you. Lord Jesus, we look at you and we thank you that as we clothe ourselves in you, in your righteousness, putting on that armor of light, and as we look at how you lived your life and seek to follow your example, to walk in your footsteps, to reflect you well in every aspect of our lives, we thank you that you will increase and that old man will decrease. Not because of us, but because of you and that this is your design. And so, Lord, as we live in this time in history, as we look around at all the trouble in the world, as we recognize so clearly that we are living in the last days and every day that passes, we are one day closer to seeing your face. I pray, Lord Jesus, for myself and every member here this morning, wake us up. Wake us up that we would take our walk with you seriously and that we would dedicate ourselves to following you for your glory until we see you face-to-face, with great joy. And we look forward to that day. In your name, amen.